Welcome back, all you determined dugongs out there. We're glad to have you joining us for another week of A Little Greener, your favorite podcast all about nature conservation and sustainability. We're back for another week. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Sarah, and I'm here with the wonderful Casey. Hello. How are you this week, Casey? How are things? Oh, so many things there. <laughs> so many things. <laughs> so many things. We were following this finger saga. I take back what I t- said last time. I have to get surgery. No! Oh, I didn't tell you that. No, you didn't. Yeah, I won't go into super detail because it's freaked my sister out, but I have to get surgery. It's not immediate need, but basically I broke my bone and then it healed crooked. So, oh, I'm so, so sorry. Do that. And we are moving two weeks from today. So hello listeners, your podcast will still be intact, I promise. <laughs> but Sarah and I will no longer be living in the same city. We will not. Weeks, and that's bittersweet. Yes, it's very sad. I yes. I'm just not thinking about that currently. That's fair. That's- <laughs> There's a lot going on. <laughs> we we have time to to think about that later I just have to compartmentalize that for now but I'm really sorry (laughs) about your finger yeah yeah we'll talk about it later it's okay guys it's a minor thing but just when you're 28 you don't want a permanently crooked finger so and still kind of hurts but anyway Sarah how's your week I just, we're just full of depressing things. We are. I'm so sorry, guys. This is like, this is a happy episode overall, but we just have to get, get some venting out for you. So, you know, you know where our brains are when we're doing this. So my struggle this week has been our two of our delightful mascots, my pets. I have a dog named Murray and a cat named LT, and they have both been having health issues this week the dog is fine not serious just more of an greyhound is the most fragile dogs on the planet earth and i don't want to say annoyance but it's just it's been impacting my ability to sleep we'll just leave it at that right now but he's he's gonna be okay we just need to figure out what's going on and get, get to the bottom of it uh but my cat is having more serious health issues and he is 17 years old and the love of my life so (laughs) so I'm trying to figure out what next steps are for him so we're going back to the vet tomorrow so they've just been both of them have been weighing on my mind a lot this week so hey guys if if you're next to your pets go give give them a hug give them a hug (laughs) just tell them that you're thankful for them and that they're great yeah um well, well, Sarah, thanks for, uh, I know your week has been super busy, so I'm glad to be here with you doing something that we both like, and yes. it's generally a very positive this space. Is, uh, yes. It really, it really is. This is always a, a bright spot in the week when we get to do this. Yeah. So this is a little greener ALG and we are a podcast about nature conservation and sustainability. So we're coming at you from lots of angles. And last week we had an episode about plastics. It was plastics 101. And we assign each other challenges as well as our, our listeners challenges every week. Um, and last week's list of challenges had a lot of options. And I'll tell you, Sarah, I did Google plastic wars and intended to watch it. It's on the list still, but I did actually not get to my homework this past week. Um, I think partially because reducing single use plastics has 
been on my mind for a long time and we're pretty far in our journey for that. I did not use the straw when I had a milkshake yesterday. Good job. I just used a reusable spoon. So that's, I guess, the only thing I can really point to. What about you? Every little bit is helpful. Yeah, just because of everything we just talked about, I didn't make too much headway. Again, I, I did start to watch Plastic Wars previous to that episode. So I have, I've seen a, a fair chunk of it. I would like to go back and sit down and focus on it a little more. I didn't do a true plastic audit on myself in that I didn't sit down and go over everything that I was throwing out, but I did try to be mindful of my where my single-use plastic was. And it was a little bit discouraging for me because I felt like I've tried to stay, take steps forward in this for a while, but I feel like I also, it's almost like two steps forward, one step back type of thing where I'll make some progress in one area and then lose it in another. My kitchen is still pretty heavy on plastic waste, I feel like. So I need to really, Casey, you know, I've been trying to get myself on a journey to eat healthier also. So, I've been focusing on that a little bit and not worrying too much about some of the plastic waste that comes along with it, but I feel like I need to get myself back on track a little. So I think that I actually need to sit down and be a little more intentional about what things I can actually change out in the kitchen in particular to reduce my plastic waste a little more. This reminds me, yes, last week you used the word journeys a lot, um, but it's true that we're in... Uh, a lot of different journeys throughout life. And it's important to recognize that sometimes like a journey to make yourself healthier definitely should take some sort of priority over like, you know, a single particular plastic item. And so it's okay to have other priorities in life. It's just once you get a little bit of handle on that journey, like you said, being intentional about reevaluating where you're at and moving forward with kind of your, your new lifestyle in a way that also makes sense for the environment. So I think that's definitely relatable and appreciable. Yeah. So more to come on that as I figure out what specific steps I'm going to be able to take, but at least put a little bit of time into, into my plastic audit. So the other thing I wanted to mention from a previous week's challenge from your episode on fast fashion and the impact of the fashion industry on the environment is I did take a step forward there. I haven't fixed my shirt yet, but I've purchased the needle and thread. Yes. (laughs) So I did think about that when I was doing my grocery shopping, I just picked up a small sewing kit. So stay tuned next week. We'll see. <laughs> to Maybe see if I'll, Sarah I'll take can a, suture a shirt. Yes, I'll take a before and after <laughs> yes, please do of the hole in my t-shirt that I'm going to attempt to close up. Please do. Oh, a couple of other updates. Um, if you have followed us on any of our social media, you might've seen that we are an official supporter of Bird Names for Birds. So if you haven't checked out that initiative that we talked about a couple episodes ago, check that out. We're now going to be linked on their website and they're doing some really cool stuff. So check out Bird Names for Birds. And also speaking of birds, uh, that mysterious illness facing our songbirds here in 
kind of the Midwest and Northeastern North America has spread officially to our state and actually to Pennsylvania, where I'm going to be moving back to. And so if you are listening and you haven't heard the news yet, you should take down your feeders until this uh, mortality event has passed, or at least we understand the origins and that it's not contagious. But for right now, it's a good idea to try and prevent that disease by helping birds social distance. Uh, If you're still like, I want to see birds plant native things in your backyard. And if you want to learn more about birds, you should listen to episode three, which is about backyard birds and helping them out. Is that right, Sarah? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Episode three. Nailed it. Okay. (laughs) One day I won't be able to do that, but today I did. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for those updates, Casey. Yeah. Uh, And I do have a question for you, Sarah. What is your favorite marine mammal? Um, we're going to be talking about marine mammals today. Obviously, I don't know that I have a strong affinity to a particular marine mammal. Do you like marine mammals? I do. Yeah, sure. But sort of in the way that I like all animals, I don't know if it's just because I grew up in a landlocked state or what the deal is that I just I didn't maybe grow up feeling particularly connected to marine mammals. Maybe if I were going to say like sea otters, maybe I just like Aww, otters that's a cute in general. One. Yeah. So, so maybe a sea otter or living in Florida, I got to have a soft spot in my heart for manatees. Yeah. Have you ever seen a sea otter in person? No. Oh my goodness. I saw them when I went to Minnesota with Andrew and at a zoo, obviously yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they don't live there. People <laughs> who don't know about sea otters. Um, but oh my goodness, they're ginormous. Yeah, they're big. <laughs> they are so much bigger than like if you watched Finding Dory and they were all like curled up on the road being yeah. adorable, stopping traffic or whatever. Those would be ginormous <laughs> animals blocking the roads. You would not miss them. Very cute. He, way bigger than I thought they were. Yeah, aren't they like over 50 pounds or something? I'm going to sound yeah, silly abs- now. When no, I, I, th- okay. I think you're absolutely right. So like when I worked at the Philadelphia Zoo, we had south american giant river otters and Mm -hmm. i like those are really big otters if you're used to like asian small clawed or north american like those seem like normal size um but no (laughs) giant river otters are are giant obviously but i did not expect sea otters to like rival them in size but absolutely they're like five feet long it's crazy yeah and i so I, i don't have a particular reason other than they're probably the most mammal looking of, (laughs) you know what I mean? So that's just as a mammal biased person, which I admit to being, they they might be one that stands out. Cause yeah, I haven't been around sea otters. I have both of those other species. You mentioned the Asian small clods and and North American river otters. I've been around them. And I mean, they're just to fall in love with an otter. They're adorable. (laughs) So so I mean, anything just gonna float on its back in the water with its snack like resting yeah, on its to hold hands no, they do oh. water rafts so so maybe them or you know manatee again similar they're just sort of gentle giants just floating around out there eating sea their potatoes. yes eating their aquatic plants just living their life so maybe one of those two we have discussed this I am not like like I like the ocean, the ocean just terrifies me. Yeah. Um, so like, I've never been like, ah, oh, I, I don't know, relate to the freedom and the like, you right. know, swimming through the ocean, like a, a torpedo. No, that's not <laughs> me. But my favorite 
is humpback whales. Okay. And I'll tell you why. So they have recently come upon evidence. And then after like suggesting this to be a thing, a lot more people came forward and were like, yeah, absolutely. It's a thing that humpback whales seem to have like a penchant for just screwing up orca's days <laughs> andrew's fa- i asked andrew what his favorite marine mammal was he said killer whales super cool orcas um but there are different types of killer whales and some of them feed almost exclusively on mammalian prey including humpback whale calves and they hunt in packs right they're the wolves of the sea so they are a real threat to whales much larger than them but they've discovered that when these killer whales are hunting they make a lot of noise once they've actually like cornered their prey and if a humpback whale hears that nonsense they're like not today and they they swim straight into packs of orcas to prevent them from eating not just humpback whale babies but literally anything else sunfish seals there's an account of a humpback whale male rolling over on its back and lifting a weddell seal out of the water on its belly it almost fell off and he like readjusted it with his flippers and rescued it from a bunch of killer whales um and and, like put it on on the ice so it couldn't get eaten and like scientists are discussing this on terms of like empathy which i think is so cool like yeah do these animals have empathy for these other animals do they recognize that not only are these killer whales feeding upon humpback whale calves and that's really could be a trauma related response that like that's that's something they recognize and want to save these other animals from the same issue um and i think that's an, a really interesting exploration and I, it's one of the reasons i like marine mammals is they're very very smart and have an emotional component to yeah. it um but also i like to think that like andrew and i are talking about like why would they do this and he's like maybe it's kind of everything and there's so there's a part of me that thinks that maybe these whales are just kind of petty. Like they got messed with once by a killer whale and was like, this man's never eating again. <laughs> and are just like willing to just be like, I don't care about this sunfish, this random like disc shaped giant fish, but you're not but eating you're it. You're going down. Yeah. <laughs> right. I don't care about them, but I care about you having a bad day. <laughs> so I think that those stories are so fascinating. And obviously we have so much to learn still yes. about marine mammal cultures and language and so many cool things going on. Um, So I wanted to talk today a little bit about some successes we've actually had with marine mammals. So we'll talk some about their threats, but this is going to be an overall kind of positive episode about some cool policies that have come into place and and why they work. So if you stay tuned, we're going to discuss that in the main body, but first we're going to have a review from Sarah. Welcome back, everyone. My review for today is of a TV show, and this was a very unplanned review. I was not aware that this show was a thing that was happening. I hadn't heard anything about it. I was putting on the Olympic trials last week. Ferris Jam. Yep. I'm so sad. I don't know what I'm going to do with myself for the next few weeks until the Olympics actually start now that trials are over, but so I was going to put on Olympic trials. And I, as I was scrolling through 
there was uh, this show called When Nature Calls. This is unrelated to the Ace Ventura movie, thankfully. I was going to say, starting strong (laughs) with some toilet humor. Uh, So, and I, I, kind of just looked at it real quick and it was it said something about being a a nature documentary with a humorous twist or something like that and so I was like okay like that sounds interesting and I just I clicked on record so it got saved to my little cloud thanks YouTube TV and uh so I could go back and watch it later I I don't really know what to say about this show quite honestly so that it is it is maybe exactly what it's advertised. So it, it's almost like a spoof on a nature documentary. Or if you've ever seen the little internet videos where they do voiceovers of where it's animals doing something and they'll do a human voiceover with the animals. That's what this show is. Narrated by Helen Mirren, who she's fan, like I love Helen okay. Mirren. She's a great actor. Uh, but so she's narrating it and then it just cuts in and out to different clips of different animals with human voiceovers so are they like are they actually described like is it like that video of the prairie dog that's going alan 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 (laughs) i love that too i just can't imagine like half an hour but yeah exactly thank you so that's exact and it's an hour it's an hour sure what the goal is and who the audience is and yet I still can't so in my mind as I was putting this review together I was like this is going to be a negative review which is not my thing I'm going to tend to be pretty positive in these reviews if you haven't noticed I'm going to want to review things that I like not me conspiracy stinks (laughs) anyway (laughs) but then you know the more that I was thinking about it I was like I don't know if I hate it I just don't understand it and I feel like there is an opportunity here that we're missing so as a conservation educator our job is to get people to connect to animals right we want people to feel empathy to the animal kingdom we want them to feel a connection and that through that caring and through that connection that's going to inspire people to want to to do their part to help protect nature so and I think humor can be valuable in that and I think it's a it's good to see the lighter side of things but there's no educational component at least in this first episode that I could find so you know for example one of the the clips is they're showing monkeys and I I I can't tell what they're doing exactly but they're you know monkeys primates intelligent tool users that kind of thing so he's got a stick and he looks like he's trying to get something but they're not they don't talk about that at all there's a voiceover going on that's about like a husband and wife arguing about the husband trying to fix something on his own and not calling the plumber like that type of thing so is it just harmless entertainment? Is it just humor for the sake of humor? Maybe, but then there was one clip with Kawadi where they were talking about Kawadi and the joke was about, oh, I want one. Helen Mirren's like to her producer, like get me one. I want one as a pet. And the producer's like, oh, well, I mean, I, they're wild animals and I think they're protected. 
And she's like, okay, well, I'll take some chipmunks and a squirrel until we get this sorted out or whatever. And I'm just like, I don't understand. I don't understand what what we're trying to do here. Does that make any sense at all? Like, I just. Yes. Unfortunately, I'm reminded of like, I'm not talking about anyone in particular, but I have had this experience sometimes when you're like in a social setting with someone who just keeps trying to show you videos Mm -hmm. that are like kind of funny. but like, there's no through line or, and you're just going to end up being like, Oh yeah, that's yep. <laughs> like, and it, that exists. It seems like yeah. a lot of the humor is a little cliche too, of like a husband and wife, like yeah, not treading new ground <laughs> a little bit. They, there, there were moments that I laughed. There were moments there. If, if you do watch it and I kind of want people to watch it because right. I want somebody to explain to me. <laughs> who the target audience is and what they're what they're trying to to accomplish with this there's a penguin clip that made me laugh that I thought was funny but it I just I feel like I needed something more and I was reading an article where they they interviewed Helen Mirren and she she made a comment about how you're gonna learn from this show and I just the first episode at least and only one episode is out thus far I think it actually the second one comes out tonight the night that we're recording this so I might occasionally keep checking this out just to see where it goes because if there does get to be some kind of educational component again I feel like there's an opening for this I feel like this could be something that could be really fun to have a more humorous look at nature and the thing I will say is it's beautiful like I don't know if they got the footage specifically for this show or if it's just the parent company has other footage that they're using from other documentaries but the shots are beautiful and so it's just it's hard for me as a conservation educator to sort of grasp this without having some deeper purpose behind it I think maybe is my trouble and like you say like I laughed at that prairie dog video online but to watch that for an hour I'm just not sure who that's for well, and I think something you haven't mentioned yet is just like the dangers of anthropomorphizing animals right. in the first place. Yeah. Like the it, thing is, is that, it, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say kind of what you said before, like we want empathy, right? So right. You're, you're talking about the, these humpback whales and we're, we're projecting what they're doing, but it's a thing that makes you relate and identify and that's okay. And that's good. And that's, that's helpful as right. long as you realize the limitations. And we talk to so many people each and every day that falsely anthropomorphize, that right. incorrectly anthropomorphize. And I do, yeah, that's always a fear that I have when watching something like this. So if I were watching it with you or our other coworkers right. who know better, we might we would find also roast it. But fun. yes, yeah, but we, <laughs> we might find some things funny. Sure. But I worry about the general public sometimes taking in something like this. And maybe drawing some some false conclusions. Oh, to- totally. I I was just thinking about like the normal nature documentary, David Attenborough. Honestly, like if you listen in on that, I know that maybe it's not everybody's cup of tea. But his little dry English humor, mm-hmm. where you, where you, he's like, oh the the bird is showing off, the male is showing off his best for the female. Mm-hmm. I'm just watching, and then there's like a pause, and he goes not today <laughs> like that to me is yes. like already like I just enjoy that dry yes. British humor yeah but also like I have been at groups of animals talking to people and sort of narrating what's happening in human terms between them mm-hmm. but still 
fairly accurately portraying what is happening between them and it's it's interpreting that behavior and putting it in like language for them and like trying to show but it's not like you know in a married married couple for example like so many children and i know that's not probably the target audience but like so many children already are like are they married and i know that has like more implications outside of it but the amount of humans don't realize that like adult humans don't realize that most animals are not monogamous yeah. like yeah it just seems like there's maybe room halfway in, in between yeah you don't have to be as dry as david attenborough but you might not need to you know be calling quadamundi a pet and like yeah and again like I, yeah. they're it's totally all done in jest like it's clearly right. supposed to be a joke so maybe this is just me being over overly sensitive i don't know but i'm curious to see if the, the show does continue, if, if it, if it winds its way there, you know, if maybe we do find a little more balance. Cause I would, like I said, I would be totally down for a, a more overtly humorous type of documentary. If, if we can find the right balance, I will say to, uh, since you mentioned kids, it, it is TV 14. It does have some, definitely some adult okay. humor in, incorporated in there. So I think it, uh, I can't remember what time it was when I saw this on but I think it comes on a little bit later in the evening and so it's it's not targeting children just FYI if you do decide to check it out so I don't know that was kind of an all over the place review no but I think you brought up some really like salient points that are gonna continue to roundabout as because our background is conservation education I think that's a great uh related topic that I'm glad you brought up because I, I hadn't heard of this show. Yeah. I have watched other ones um that are sort of similar that actually sound kind of less entertaining than what you're describing. Like it sounds like the thing you're describing is like meant to be primarily entertainment. Yeah. And I just I haven't seen honestly the best thing I've seen and this is not safe for children. I don't think it's like Snoop Dogg doing clips of uh, documentaries. Highly recommend. There's like otters getting attacked by a crocodile and he's like reacting in real time to it. Like obviously not as a educational moment, <laughs> but but like but it is a, like a true like empathetic moment yeah. where he's like what. And then they're yeah. like giving up and he's like, what are these animals? And I always think of that, that what are these animals? <laughs> so yeah. my terrible Snoop Dogg impression, but yes. Your so like, David yeah. Attenborough is better than your Snoop well, <laughs> I bought her practice on that one. <laughs> yeah. So I guess the jury's still out. I initially, when I watched the show, I did not care for it. Yeah. And I still think it's probably not my cup of tea, but Again, I just, I really want good things for it. I really want to see it do something. Yeah. If you're watching it, these are things to think about while you're watching it to help color your context and, and see if it's right for you. Yeah. Keep in mind. No, that was, I think Sarah, I didn't know this was a thing that existed and I appreciate your viewpoint. I don't know if it'll, it'll impact your life or not, but there you go. So thanks for listening everybody. Stick around and we will be back with our main discussion. Right. Welcome back, everyone, to the main discussion portion of our uh, episode. We're going to be talking about protecting marine mammals. Hooray. So, 
Hooray. Yes. Um, Sarah, why do you think people really like marine mammals? From our discussion from earlier and in, in my favorite, there is that, we've used this term before, that charismatic megafauna yep. thing. These are large mammals. Think, you know, your tigers, your bears, that sort of thing that people just, just pandas, you know, just seem to be naturally drawn to. So that's part of it, especially if you're thinking about things like polar bears and otters, I think they are animals that we do tend to send like intelligence or emotional capacity when you're talking about animals like whales and dolphins. So I think that's part of it. And I think you kind of alluded to this too, when you were talking about the humpback whales, but there's a, I think there's a mystery component to it as well. These are animals that live in a completely opposite habitat from us in a place that we, places that we would not be able to survive. Right. And there's so much mystery still. There's so much unknown. So I think, and there's, you know, there we've, we see these majestic images of whales coming up and breaching and, and that sort of thing. So that's just sort of the mystery and the majesty maybe <laughs> of them as well is compelling to people. Yeah, I think that that's really well put. I also just recognized that like, so a couple of weeks ago, a guy claimed to have been like swallowed by a whale quote unquote basically like the they like it I think it was a humpback opened its mouth and he like slid through the baleen inside but th that particular moment actually reminded me basically of the opposite notion which is that these animals are also not threatening to humans mm. I think in most contexts obviously like our media has really built them up as animals capable of forming these like human-like relationships with people but also like even though I, I think orcas are amazing. They really scare me. <laughs> um, Can I just say Pinocchio as a child? Oh, yeah. I actually feel Monstro like I've been a little bit afraid of whales scarred. because of Monstro. Well, that's the thing is like, I loved being in a boat next to a whale. I got to see whales from a helicopter once. And that was like, uh, it was like a nature documentary. But like the idea of even being in the water with a humpback whale, which is my favorite and know that they don't have any targeted aggression towards mm -hmm. me i am not a mammalian eating killer whale <laughs> um I, I have no desire <laughs> like just because they're so big that like they just yeah. flip around and you can get smacked but like you know the idea of these guys saving you from sharks who are are characterized as kind of the villains and things like that like i think there's so many things that go into it i'm kind of fascinated by the psychology of the whole thing um, now I want to dig, dig more into it, but <laughs> during this podcast, we've been talking a lot about a lot of different facets of conservation. So a lot of times we've been talking about personal responsibility. I think single use plastic is a really good mm -hmm. example of that. We have a lot of personal changes in our lifestyles, um, eating meat that we can change that are going to be influential. We also have through personal responsibility, using our consumer pressure to put pressure on industry. And so we've talked about that in the form of um, the market-based solutions from Forest Stewardship Council, mm -hmm. for example. But also government policy is an incredibly important part of this. And genuinely, in my mind, the biggest actual thing that's going to help solve some of the biggest issues facing our planet. No matter what I do, I cannot protect land in other countries right. to a certain extent. Like I can't make somebody go to jail for breaking the rules and like, you know, poaching or 
polluting more than they're necessary. So Sarah's covered things like the Clean Water Act before on this this uh, podcast. Um, but it, it's it's a really important part. And the, the advantages that they have, especially a government policy should be informed by scientific data and should be informed with the participation of all affected parties. That's a really important yeah. aspect of it. You need to make sure that like, we're not making a rule that helps the environment, but hurts an already marginalized group. And that it also has proper enforcement mechanisms because laws don't really matter if no one's willing to enforce them. And that tends to be a huge issue in a lot of countries that don't have a lot of resources and good infrastructure to begin with. Um, I'm thinking of like Madagascar where a lot of their wildlife is endangered, but there's not a lot of people to enforce any sort of taking of that wildlife because there's not really a centralized way of distributing the information in the first place. So having this proper enforcement so that there's consequences, having good information, it really takes a functioning good government to be able to put in place this policy. So obviously there's a lot of obstacles throughout the world. And also that some of these things are on an international scale. They go past the borders of certain countries. So today I wanted to talk about a very successful law here in the U.S. and then some other laws and international agreements that have really helped protect specifically marine mammals. And the first one we're going to talk about is the Marine Mammal Protection Act of 1972. If you are like thinking about, oh, the Queen, Clean Water Act, we talked about Earth Day at mm-hmm. one point, you might be like figuring out that there's a nexus to all of the dates in this. And that is the very end of the 1960s and the very beginning of the 1970s. Um, and it, this was enacted at the same time as many other extremely important environmental legislations, including NEPA, um, the creation of the EPA, the Clean Air and Clean Water Act, and the Endangered Species Act. And something that might be surprising to a lot of people is that this was uh, all signed into law by President Nixon. And I don't know how much history anyone else has, but um, Nixon was not like a a tree hugger. (laughs) I I don't know if I can actually picture Richard Nixon in nature personally. Uh, He's, if you're not from the U.S., not necessarily has the best reputation. He had to resign in district's grace. Scandal. Yeah, lots of scandals. Um, But I think what we can learn about this is Nixon was not a tree hugger, actually. Sorry, go ahead. No, it's just really funny that, I mean, when I think I I am not a history buff by any stretch, but I hear Nixon and I think Watergate, I I don't ever think about that 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 was him for all of these over environmental. One of his aides, gosh, I should look up the exact quote, but one of his aides, it'll be in the show notes, had said to him, I think your like biggest legacy is all the amazing environmental protection that you put in place. And apparently he was not happy and said, let's hope not, John. (laughs) Um, Basically what happened was, is that Nixon was in some hot water for some uh, war things that people were not happy about. And so he kept using really popular environmental legislation to help boost his approval rating. The creation of the EPA was apparently to actually eliminate a lot of other government agencies that were covering a lot of the environment and consolidate them to create smaller government. 
So that's a thing that's pretty central to the Republican Party here is they don't like government overreach. So you'd think that all of these things that put caps and limits upon industry and the free market would be things that he wouldn't want to sign. But actually, like these are bipartisan efforts, like Dem- Democrats were definitely involved. Republicans were definitely involved in passing a lot of this legislation or it wouldn't have gone through. Nixon just happened to be the president who signed it. And the reason he signed it is because they were immensely popular with the public. People really were not aware of what was going on with environmental issues in the early 60s, but really quickly became aware of a lot of the issues um, going forward. So like there were televised oil spills, for example, that became a big issue. And that really spurred the public. And the Marine Mammal Protection Act really came about because people really care about these charismatic megafauna and wanted to do something to help them. So question for Sarah, we've already sort of like listed (laughs) some of those animals. Maybe this is a little redundant, but what is a marine mammal? I mean, it's pretty much what you would expect. So these are mammals like us. So these are air breathing creatures, other mammal traits that you might think of that have hair, although to what extent some have more or less or more limited over a a smaller portion of their life. They're going to have parental care to some component, nurse their young, those types of things. But these marine mammals are going to do that in a marine or ocean environment. So we've talked about a lot of different kinds that you can kind of group them for. So you've got your cetaceans, so whales, dolphins in that group. I mentioned the manatee. We introduced our, our intro was dugongs today. So uh, the manatees, dugongs, yes. yes. Uh, you've got your polar bears and sea otters that maybe we don't necessarily think about as often as being marine mammals, but they are classified as such. And then you've got your pinnipeds, so your, your fin-footed animals like your seals, sea lions, walruses. And just now, Casey, I had a revelation. I might need to change my answer again on Do my it. favorite marine mammal. The narwhal. Oh, yes. How yes. do you not mention the narwhal? <laughs> I mean, this is an animal that probably a lot of the general public, if you were polled, would say is not a real animal. Yeah. I think they are thought of as being a mythical animal a lot. They got a giant tusk coming out of the tops of their heads. How do you not love an animal like that? So I basically know nothing about them, but I, I get I really mean, excited when they're But they're, they're on super it. cool. Yeah. I mentioned narwhals later in our script and I put a bunch of exclamation points after it because oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> Narwhal. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah like you said and and if you're thinking like mammals have hair well uh, like these don't all have hair dolphins actually are born with a mustache which yeah. feels like a cop-out but is true, true and they fit everything else they drink milk yeah all that kind of stuff going on so um they have a lot more in common than you and me than like a fish right so uh, i think that again that's another thing that sort of sort of is interesting is they dwell in the same environment as fish and lots of other animal animals animals that we generally have problems empathizing with. We have no problem empathizing with the dolphin. I bet you flipper has something to do with it. Mm. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of like media that would make you think about marine mammals in a different context. So scientists and citizens were becoming increasing aware, increasingly aware of declining populations of marine mammals in the 1960s. Two kind of big issues that were coming to light were dolphin mortality from tuna fishing 
So basically they were using purse scenes, which is a net that you wrap around things and then you just lift everything that's in there. And dolphins oftentimes are in the same areas, tunas. And so lots of dolphins were dying in that process. Again, I think it's interesting to think like we had a huge problem with dolphin mortality, but we have no problem with tuna mortality because yeah. tunas is what we were looking to make sure we we caught. Um so I just find it interesting. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I just think it's interesting. It is interesting. Um, the clubbing of baby seals for the fur trade. That is also something that really is not as prevalent anymore. I think there's only like five countries who still use like club seals, basically. That was the traditional way of killing them. Um, and like, if you've ever seen a baby seal, oftentimes the pictures that you'll sh- are shown are them with their lanugo, which is their like soft, white, downy birth fur. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a cuter animal. <laughs> it's the most precious. Basically, giant eyes with a tiny nose, and it's white and fluffy, and fluffy like and, and little it's, it's soft. You were meant to protect it. <laughs> it's almost it hurts. It's, it's so cute, like, cute aggression. Yes. Um, now, in reality, um, there are lots of laws that actually, in some cases, would prevent people from actually killing babies who has to have their lanugo. They're um, it's actually older ones, but they're still like less than a year old seals, lots of them, obviously some ethical things to think about when you're talking about, like, we're also, when we're talking about clubbing, like we're talking about the method of destruction when oftentimes we are very removed from any of the animals that like meat, for example, you probably haven't thought about how your meat was killed. I try not to, but like, this is like part of it. And then there's also continuing commercial whaling at the time. Places were still killing great whales, um, so the biggest of the species, for meat and for oil. And then again, like oil spills were being televised too, which really led to a public outrage because they could also see the source that like, this wasn't me who did the oil spill. These, these are all things that like, I want to be able to source my tuna ethically. I need corporations to be held to account. All these things were starting to, to put pressure on limiting pollution, making sure people could breathe better air and being able to have clean water. And then also this is like an actually protecting animals thing. So bycatch and hunting are two big issues historically impacting marine mammals, Sarah, but what are some other threats that they face kind of all around the world. And you have to name as oh, all of them, but. I mean, there there are lots though. So you talk about, you talk about bycatch in particular, there's lots of other issues that might come from that. Uh, pollution in the water, whether that's from onshore plastic pollution or pollution from the fish, fishing industry. So uh, fishing materials that get left out in the water. Think about boat strikes. I've mentioned manatees a few times. That's an issue for them as well as we talked about the North Atlantic right whales. We shared some positive news several weeks back about them. Successful calvings this year, I think is what we were talking about, but Mm -hmm. boat strikes are uh, also a, a threat for them. We've talked about noise pollution before on this podcast as a threat to lots of different types of animals, including marine life. We talk about whales and dolphins with that as well. And then, of course, climate change. You could talk about that for most (laughs) species these days, but, you know, in particular, thinking about some of our marine mammals like narwhals, there are those exclamation points (laughs) that are going to be dependent on sea ice for survival and climate change impacting the uh, amount and accessibility of sea ice for those species. 
Yes. Lots of things. Um, and not just sea ice for climate change, but some of our largest animals in the ocean depend on the smallest animals in the ocean and their ability to reproduce within mm-hmm. certain water temperatures. So when we yeah. change the amount of krill and algae available to these animals, it completely can mess up if they have enough energy to reproduce. So that's issues for things like those North Atlantic right whales. And we're still talking about them today because a lot of the threats that face these species are not covered by the Marine Mammal Protection Act. So let's talk about the things that are covered by the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Some of the things that currently threaten marine mammals are what we would consider indirect threats. So something like climate change, it's not like directly targeting marine mammals, but that is an environmental change um, that is going to continue to impact them. So the Marine Mammal Protection Act was put in place to protect all marine mammals from direct threats. So something that we would consider take, which can be anything from like directly killing one of these animals to actually harassing them or preventing them from engaging in natural behaviors. A later amendment really weakens some of the strength of enforcement on some of these more minor infractions because it actually takes a a much more broad approach. Basically, the goal of the Marine Mammal Protection Act is to protect these animals so that they can be at a optimal population level. So they are trying to look at an ecosystem scope and see how much the environment should how many of these animals should exist in this environment and anywhere from that like optimal sustainable level all the way up to what we consider carrying capacity which is the maximum amount of animals that the uh the environment can carry is really the target goal for getting these marine mammal populations back but it was mostly to protect them against direct take and so that's and and that's direct killing for the most part so that is supposed to help solve that ecosystem thing. And that's what later lawyers decided was the point of the bill instead of like preventing harassment of marine mammals, even though it's still illegal, don't do it. I was going to say, so this does cover, right? Because you're not supposed to approach, touch any, right. And I think, again, I think that's, it's a thing that not everybody knows. And you'll see, you'll see videos go viral on the internet of people doing things that they shouldn't be doing. So if you're listening out there and weren't aware, don't touch the sea lions, please. I went out to La Jolla beach in California and it's a beautiful little place in San Diego. And there were hundreds of sea lions up on the rocks there. And I was like, Oh, seals and sea lions. I don't get to see them out in the wild ever. Um, and it doesn't feel like the wild because there are boats everywhere and it's just a city, but that's where they live. Uh, but I was so disappointed because there were signs everywhere being like, do not approach them. Please keep with, I think it was like somewhere between 25 and 75 feet away from these animals. And there were tourists basically like there was a small ledge Mm -hmm. onto a natural rock rocky outcropping and people would just step over it and there was just a sea lion and they would stand over top of the animal so that if they had dropped their phone taking a picture it would have dropped on top of a sleeping animal guys that's not legal in a lot of places and basically disrupting an animal's ability to engage in natural behaviors like sleeping or nursing their pups 
does have long-term impacts on that animal's abilities to survive and also can make it more likely that those animals are going to need rescuing by a marine mammal rescue center because they end up having negative interactions with human beings. So they might hurt you. Or if you're like, I'm going to be a good guy and I'm going to feed them fish. And then they're like, cool, humans have fish to give me. Like I know of stories of sea lions chasing cars down the highway, <laughs> like just inappropriate interactions, not legal either, not a hundred percent. Like originally actually was under the law, but, uh, but further amendments has, have made it basically not the point, but basically it made it illegal for you to kill these animals. Um, and they made certain amount of exceptions for industrial scale fishing, where they were going to collaborate with scientists to reduce the amount of bycatch and mortality associated with fishing on marine mammals. Um, and that was something that like the tuna industry, at least according to back research, if you're involved, sorry, if I'm mischaracterizing it, but was pretty open to, because also I'm sure they're like PR people were like, <laughs> no one's eating tuna anymore because <laughs> we're murdering dolphins. Um, but also it, it created exceptions for animals taken for scientific research or public display. Mm -hmm. So actually places could still get animals for public display from the wild. Um, that continued to happen after this bill. It happens a lot less than I think people perceive Yeah, for like accredited zoos and aquariums, at least here in the U S it is not normal for them to be going out and grabbing animals who could survive out in the wild to live in human care. Um, it is much much more likely that those animals came from a rescue situation. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know that the U S even let people take dolphins out of the wild after the 1980s, but I'd have to double check. That. Another part of that, that I think was incorporated a little bit later. Originally, I believe that native American tribes had to apply for permits, but I think when they later amended the law, they just made it so that you're grandfathered in basically, which is a more equitable way of doing that. Like asking someone to apply for a permit to practice their culture. That's not great. Um, so it's good that now they're sort of grandfathered in, but some Alaskan tribes and some Native American tribes in the Pacific Northwest who are hunting these animals are part of their culture are, are exempted under this. So you will still see a small amount of kills related to, for example, eating the meat of a walrus, but then also using its tusks to create traditional pieces of yeah. culture. So fishing hooks, knives, whatever, you know things and like again, that. Yeah. And again, so that's tied into their culture and it's also sustainable that way. So we, we talk about sustainability. If you industrialize something like that, it is no longer going to be sustainable, but for that particular culture, it, it that's a, a sustainable practice. Right. And it's also like, if you're like, oh, people hunting whales, like just remember that if you eat cows, like the environmental impact of you eating a bunch of hamburgers is a lot higher than someone eating one whale, uh, as part of a subsistence culture versus a industrialized capitalistic right. culture. So, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I'm, I just keep inter interrupting you tonight, but that it is subsistence hunting that's important right. just like a lot of us do for deer and things like yes. that so it, it's i think because of the way that we perceive 
these animals to be that it feels more quote unquote wrong to some of us if we're not part of that culture. And so I think that's a mind shift that people need to make. And I don't know, hopefully that that made sense. (laughs) Yeah, no, like feeding your family, obviously super important. Also, like, it doesn't mean like, oh, just because you're part of a native Alaskan tribe, you can then like hunt whales and then sell it as part Mm -hmm. of an industrial scheme. Like it's specifically for subsistence and those exemptions are pretty clear. Um, yeah. So then like I talked about before incidental take, which is bycatch from the fishing industry, and it's supposed to be really closely monitored as well. And then there are some exemptions for take with waivers. Some activists criticized the Marine Mammal Protection Act for not outright banning all take of marine mammals in the U S And really like what they were saying, maybe some of them were again, like being, having, having some conflict with the fact that some people were allowed to hunt animals, but actually like the idea was those waivers could be granted if the populations of animals became above the carrying capacity of the environment. And, and what some of the things I were reading were saying, which I very much agree with is that we have already impacted the environment these animals live in. And so we can't just let nature necessarily take its course. If we're willing to hunt all the fish, for example, that is inherently an unnaturalistic environment for these marine mammals to live in. It means that it changes the carrying capacity. If we've gotten rid of some of the natural predators of some of these marine mammals, and they are able to reproduce in a way that is not suppressed by what we would call top-down control where the predators in the ecosystem are keeping the rest of the environment in line. When we mess with all those other factors, there, there is no way of just saying like, well, we should just let nature take its course and not kill anything. Um, in general though, there's not a lot of like, there's, there's not really any exemptions for that. And that's because the, the waivers were supposed to be with evidence that these animals were overpopulated. And we actually don't have a lot of evidence of anything. We don't have a lot of good (laughs) population things. So basically enforcement was split between two different departments. Um, This seems to have some contention, but basically between NOAA, which is the National Oceanic and Atmosphere Agency. I said it wrong, definitely, but that's basically what it is. It has to do with the ocean. And then the Department of the Interior, which is in charge of Fish and Wildlife Service. We're all about accuracy here in this box. National uh, <laughs> National Oceanic and Atmosphere. Oh shoot, I lost it. No, we'll never oh, know. The last word's no. not agency. Is it is it administration? It's probably Man, administration. They make it hard enough to find. <laughs> but basically, like some of these animals, like polar bears, for example, are under fish and wildlife. This is not the first law in the United States to protect wildlife. There are some like migratory bird laws, for example, that protected birds. Um, There was an iteration of the Endangered Species Act in 1969 prior to this that uh, protected animals, but really only like game and bird species. Um, But this is kind of a different sort of thing because it is really looking at that ecosystem level. In 1994, population levels, uh, they decided the inventment that population levels had to be assessed at least every three years with some strategic populations needing to be assessed every single year. So they, there needs to be more (laughs) funding probably given to these endeavors. 
but it's definitely like a different flavor of law than really anything that came before it yeah. um, because of how wide reaching it was and because of its approach to look at these animals on an ecosystem basis. Because we don't have a lot of population data, it's hard to quantify exactly how successful the Marine Mammal Protection Act was. But what we know is that the U.S. has healthier populations of marine mammals than lots of other countries in the world because we are not allowed to hurt them, basically, (laughs) which is very helpful. It had great recovery of harbor seals, gray seals, California sea lions, which are now like a least concerned species, elephant seals, and I said harbor seals again, but the seals are great and they're very cute. (laughs) Look them up. Whale watching is now a billion dollar industry. And uh, humpback whales and blue whales have recovered because of this act, but also because the whaling moratorium, which we're going to cover in a second. And then manatee populations have recovered in Florida. Yay, manatee. Yeah. Even though I still only ever saw one and thought it was a log. (laughs) They're just sea potatoes. (laughs) Some drawbacks is that some species have not recovered as well because this act is not good at addressing some of the issues that we put talked about earlier, which is indirect threats to marine mammals, oil spills, boat collisions, climate change, ghost fishing gear floating in the water that result in entanglement. Um, there's some legislation to help out with that. Uh, also some of these animals are migratory species, so we can protect them while they're within our waters, but when they leave our waters, we don't have ways of protecting them. So there are some issues, for example, I believe it's in the Gulf of California where we have the vaquita. Mm. If you're familiar with the vaquita, it is the world's smallest porpoise. Is that right? Mm. One of them. One of them. I'm small. I should stop mentioning things. I don't have all the information. I don't trust myself to remember. Sorry guys. It's super endangered. Like the last population study showed like 12 vaquita left and it mostly has to do with um, bycatch with gill nets for a different type of fish, but because that falls under mostly the jurisdiction of Mexico, protections were basically put in place too late and we weren't able to help out as much with that. So again, laws help out when they are within a country's borders, but they're can be more effective if you have international cooperation, especially with marine mammals that live in the water. And they don't know, there's like <laughs> no boundaries there. You just swim. So, um, so there's a couple other legis- pieces of legislation slash international agreements I wanted to talk about in relationship to protecting marine mammals. Um, so the first of which is CITES. Do you know what CITES is, Sarah? I mean, honestly, not as well as I should because we talk about it a lot. And I know that it talks about what animals and or materials from animals can be traded uh, internationally. I can't even remember what it stands for right now off the top of my head, though. And I should probably... Convention on the International Trade of Endangered Species, I believe. There you go. Um, 1973, right around the same time as the Endangered Species Act came into full effect here in the U.S. in like its most recent iteration. Everyone was starting to recognize that species were on the decline, like the effects of industrialization, especially over the course of the 18th and 19th century and colonialism and lots of other factors were resulting in noticeable declines in lots of species and in a world that could communicate a lot more quickly and could demand these species across borders. 
more and more animals needed to be put on there that could under an agreement that could be enforced no, no matter if the animal was from the country that the parts were found in or the animal was traded to so basically again shouldn't be talking about things that I don't have a source but I'm pretty sure this is true appendix one are species that are not allowed to be traded across uh, borders they've been proven to be endangered enough that uh, you cannot just like ship them across borders appendix two is that their trade should at least be regulated right. and so there should be limits to how many can be exported out a big exception to this are animals that are bred in captivity so for example um we own pancake tortoises pancake tortoises are critically endangered species uh found in tanzania and kenya and i believe they were just introduced to CITES. i believe they've been scheduled now on appendix one um but ours can be traded if we sold them across international borders which is what CITES covers uh, they are captive bred so they're not under that because we're not affecting wild populations for example so all whales and many marine carnivores are already listed under CITES so it's not legal to trade a lot of their parts or them in live specimens across certain borders internationally and that's good that's what we like the international whaling commission is another voluntary agreement that many countries have signed on to to help regulate whaling. So basically I learned so much from their website. <laughs> um, the International Whaling Commission was set up in 1946. Wow. Really early, yeah. And um, it was set up under the International Convention for the Regulation of Whaling. And the goal was to set up catch limits as well as conservation funds, preventing ship strikes, establishing conservation management plans and research for great whales only. So not okay. like porpoises and small dolphins and things like that, but Still the though, great whales. That's pretty impressive in that, that early on, they were well ahead of the curve there, I feel like. Yes, but I think that it's, so this, this next bullet point really like got me. So whaling was happening for centuries. Lots of people were whaling. Mm -hmm. But with industrialization changing the scale of it, like no one could ever catch a blue whale and no one could ever process a blue whale because it's giant and fast. But once we really developed the technology, all of a sudden you could. So mm. in 1904, 195 whales were killed in the Antarctic region for the whole year. In 1931, 37,000 whales. Wow were killed in the same region. Oh my so, goodness. So yeah. they weren't ahead of, they were ahead of the curve in terms of a lot of other environmental legislature. They were behind the curve still when it comes to whaling. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Goodness um, gracious. So yeah, lots of places were doing it. I believe we were using like whale oil to light lamps and things like okay. that. And that was a big part of it. Like that's why right whales are called right whales they are the right whale to kill. Like that's how, yeah, we were doing that. <laughs> so lots of whales have been targeted, but yes, basically like internationally, because we were all trying to mine the same resource, basically people keeping track of these things were like, wait a sec, there's less whales now. <laughs> and so together working together, they were, they were trying to set up these catch limits so that it, 
you could fairly hunt these animals in different countries. Like, you know, the middle of the Indian ocean is not owned by anyone. So it's basically a common resource people were trying to exploit. Um, sorry to talk about it so impersonally, but that's how I have to do it to really uh, understand it. And I think that's why this commission was set up. In 1982, the International Whaling Commission decided there should be a pause on commercial whaling. I read the transcript between the like delegates of different countries discussing it. Hey, Seychelles, you guys are the ones who are really <laughs> pushing this and I appreciate you. It, it was fascinating. And basically some of the countries challenged that the International Whaling Commission did not have authority to ban countries from whaling. But the Seychelles were like, hey, this isn't a ban. We're just setting all catch limits to zero. <laughs> Love it. Hello. <laughs> what a loophole. Right. Can, I, can I just ask you real quick where you found the transcripts for this? Is that on their website? Or Yeah, it wow. is. It's great. That's amazing. <laughs> so I enjoyed reading that. The distinguished gentleman from the Seychelles would like <laughs> to point out. Um so you can read it there. It's interesting because you can also look at like what your country's stance was on this particular issue. And it should be noted, there's a lot of different stances. So some people like were like, oh, well, some countries and delegates from those countries were like, well, we should extend the, like basically the Seychelles was like, let's have a wind down period. We're not going to say no more catching whales, but we have to have a wind down period so that in the industry can understand adjust. it, adjust to it exactly. Um, so there's some argument about like how long that should be that it was fully enacted in 1986. Um, it should be noted that the United States, where we're from, did fully support it, but basically had already done the Marine Mammal Protection Act. So there wasn't really a lot of commercial whaling in U.S. waters anyway. And there's never really been a giant market since electricity for whale oil <laughs> here in the U.S. for whale meat. So we didn't really have a lot of stake in it, you know, and then like the great Britain was the only one I saw who said, we actually have some big concerns about the humaneness and the animal welfare issues, which I thought was also interesting yeah. that, uh, it wasn't just an ecosystem point. Some countries objected because they said, since the decision was made by the IWC, we're supposed to be based on scientific data on populations, because there weren't really scientific data on the populations, that meant it was impossible. But the other countries who argued in favor of it, that said that basically any data that was available, every time we got data, it said these animals are in such decline that if we don't stop, we're going to wipe them out. Every time we, we actually got information, it all pointed in the same direction. So that was enough to get a passing vote. And, um, and same thing with the Marine Mammal Protection Act. And it's actually the uh, IWC who really characterized the difference between aboriginal hunting of whales versus the commercial hunting of whales is that commercial by nature wants to maximize the practice and aboriginal hunting by nature wants to subsist upon a resource. Mm -hmm. um, there's still some countries who had some issues with it because there are populations of whales that maybe Aboriginal peoples were hunting that are so endangered that maybe they should be prevented from taking. Um, but that ended up being an exemption under that as well. There are limitations to an international agreement, right? And that's basically that this is a voluntary agreement across countries and they can leave basically whatever they want. So in some 
some international agreements, like you have built-in consequences for doing this, like trade embargoes and things like that. Um, but Norway had lodged an agreement, uh, lodged a reservation and objected to the moratorium. And while they remain a member of the IWC, they still take North Atlantic common mink whales in their economic exclusive zone. So within their own waters, but not anywhere else. Iceland has caught, has hunted whales in, in recent years, but has not caught whales since 2018. And Japan left the IWC in 2019 and they now whale commercial, commercially. Mm-hmm. So like, this is a agreement, <laughs> but yeah. there, there's a, nobody's going to jail for it. Again, there could be trade embargoes if the United States felt really, really serious about some of this. And perhaps there are some, some things we have done, but that's just, just what happens in international agreements people try yeah and and countries you know to a certain extent have sovereignty over their own areas so it's a little hard in in some of these to say like this is our resource and we're not allowed to use it even if from an animal perspective we might find it objectionable because we have empathies with those animals and we don't want them to do and then I wanted to point out the International Dolphin Conservation Program Act in the 1990s, which is actually very hard to find, um, but it was signed with the U.S., Venezuela, Vanuatu, Panama, Spain, Colombia, Costa Rica, Belize, France, Honduras, and Ecuador. And this act commits all of these countries to reducing dolphin mortality in the tropical Pacific to 5,000 a year while pristine fishing for yellowfin tuna. So it basically acknowledges it's very narrow, obviously, like that's, that's a lot of qualifiers, yeah. but it is an international agreement to help consumers in the U S who get their tuna this way to say like, Oh, marine mammal protection acts in, in place. Like we don't have to worry about dolphins dying, but it actually like internationally spread some of those limitations to these other countries and everyone agreed to it. So that's cool. I wasn't familiar with that at all. I wasn't either. Thank you. Other websites that ended up linking me to that which again, we'll put in the show notes. So what's happening today? 37% of marine mammals are considered vulnerable, endangered, or critically endangered by the IUCN. So we've talked about this as in terms of like successes, and so many of them have been. There are reasons for hope. With the IWC moratorium, humpback whales have recovered from just 7,000 animals to 100,000 animals, with some populations back to their pre-whaling levels. That's awesome. Blue whales also have made it a really amazing recovery from like an estimated 400 animals. They're now back in the thousands. So that's pretty cool. Under the Marine Mammal Protection Act, the U.S. is requiring foreign fisheries to be held to the same bycatch levels of U.S. fisheries. And fisheries in other countries have until November 2021, this year, to apply to be under, like to be an acceptable fishing vendor. And then the decisions will be made by the end of 2022. So that's to me really, really awesome. Like this act that we passed in the seventies is now going to be impacting kind of worldwide who we are importing our fish from. Yeah. Um, And this is great because an estimated 650,000 individual marine mammals are still caught as bycatch every year. And so having more fisheries adhere to our standards will reduce the bycatch. So like if one fishery is now adhering to our standards, even if the U S is not their only consumer, now the other countries who are consuming them are also still consuming fish held to their standard because they can't prove that that particular tuna went to the U S versus, you know, the unsustainably caught one 
caught elsewhere. So there are reasons for hope. And there's a reason that government policy is an extremely important part of the solutions to conservation on a worldwide scale. Um, as someone who lived in Pennsylvania growing up, like I had very little contact with marine mammals. I think it's very cool that I live in a country that takes their protection really seriously. We still have ways to go, but this is, this is one of those reasons that it's important to look at your politicians, yeah. no matter if they're Richard Nixon or if they're just a hippie, <laughs> um, because politicians sway the way that the wind is blowing and everyone recognizes that animal welfare is a win-win issue amongst voters, no matter what your political stripes are. And so putting pressure on them to put in place robust policies that protect animals. And in this case, ecosystems, amazing, are super important to solving some of the biggest conservation issues that we have today. That includes climate change. That includes direct killing of animals. So Yeah. That's why I wanted to cover it today. I love it. Thanks, Casey. And you are, I think, very good. Again, I'm, I'm just, I'm not a person that likes history. I'm not a person that likes politics. I don't feel very knowledgeable in any of those things. And so I think that has sort of kept me out of the game a little bit. Like I just haven't been willing to sort of dip my toe into those waters. And I think through honestly through talking to you and 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 hearing about some of your things I I think you've helped me kind of step forward into this this avenue a little bit and recognizing this is this is not about political party please you know you you've said before that but nature nature is not a it's not a partisan it's not a partisan issue yes thank you and uh and I think that's very true and no matter what you if you're associated with the party or not if the environment is something that is important to you you can make that known to your legislators and that is so important and the marine mammal protection act is one example of showing how much of a difference this can make and and what a positive impact that it can have so thank you for that Uh, and thanks for this discussion i really like it also National Oceanic and Atmospheric <laughs> Administration. Dang it. Got it on the second on try. Your, on, the, on, the second on, try. on the edge of your suit waiting for that answer. Yes. That's what Noah stands for. All right. Two last things. One, yeah. thank you to Professor uh, McWhorter and Professor Eisen from my environmental ethics and environmental law and policy classes from college because those have very much helped me understand the uh, context of the things that we're talking about. And I thought that was a part of my learning that I was always interested in, but didn't think was useful. It's useful now, <laughs> podcast people. Uh, the other thing I want to say is that like, I should say nature should not be a partisan issue. And sometimes yes. our politicians, especially on a national level, seem so polarized Um, They don't necessarily represent the opinions of their constituents. I guess that's what I'm trying to get upon it. Like, yes, certain factions of political parties can be more consistently advocating for safe, clean, healthy environments in nature. That doesn't mean that it is only people who are affiliated with those politicians care about those issues um, and should be involved in the decision making. So, yeah. If something's important to you, I don't care who you vote for on this particular issue. Like, just let them know that nature is important to you. And we're going to have better policy when we do that. Yeah. All right, guys, stick around. (laughs) We'll be back with our take-home action.
right, and we're back. And for our take-home portion of the week, uh, not all of us are going to run into marine mammals, so I want to give some conditional ones. (laughs) So it's summertime. Lots of us are vacationing out by the water. Maybe you already live by where marine mammals live. If you live there or if you're vacationing there on your plane ride there, when you're sitting in your hotel, whatever, I want you to look up what the local regulations are for marine mammals if you see an animal on the beach it doesn't automatically mean it's stranded some of these animals just like to rest there but you should know what to look for and contact a rescue center if you feel like that animal is in danger and they're going to be able to provide you the best information on how to help that animal or just to leave that animal alone remember that's always an option we don't want to see any more videos of people like passing around a dolphin before they send it back into the ocean we we want to be informed by the people who know these animals best and so that's kind of how you can help them out also um take a look at what your senator, local politician, someone you're interested in, someone who represents you, what their stances are like on their website about the environment and see if they line up with yours. And if they do say, thanks, tell them, please tell them why you like what's going on. If they don't tell them the things that maybe you agree on and things that you want them to improve upon. And to remember our politicians are elected to represent us. So they should know what your stance is and nature should be a vocal issue for you. Whether something is happening in the news or, you know, something's not happening in the news. Yeah. So just let them know what's going on. I'm going to try and do that for my future senators because I'm moving in a couple of weeks yeah. to let them know what's going on. Um, but that's my challenge to everyone. Sarah, where can you find us on social media? You can find us on Facebook at a little greener podcast. So feel free to interact with us there, post, share what you're doing. You can also find us on Instagram at a little greener pod. You also feel free to message us on there, post, tag us in your photos, whatever week of the podcast you're on. If you're doing challenges from different weeks, doesn't matter if you're doing other things that are not challenges that uh, you just you know moments in nature that you're enjoying feel free to tag us in those as well when you're getting your outdoor time if you have anything you want to reach out to us about you can also email us at a little greener podcast at gmail.com nailed it (laughs) and and we'd love to hear from you whatever you have if it's thoughts on an episode that you've listened to if you have ideas for future episodes things that you've found that you think are cool that you want to share with us and you think would be cool for us to share on a future episode whatever you would like we would love to hear from you thank you guys for listening to another week we will talk to you next week (laughs) Stay safe out there. Bye.